Welcome to the Rock Quiz, or as it is known around here, the little-known and even less cared-for fact, Rock Quiz and Stomp. I'm your friendly neighborhood quiz master, Mike McCarthy. So, what is a little-known and even less cared-for fact, Rock Quiz, anyway? Well, here's an example. Before the Beatles made it big, they refined their craft where they were frequently booked at the Cavern Club in what German city? Was it A, Frankfurt, Germany, B, Hamburg, Germany, C, Buns, Germany, D, Cookout, Germany? Let me repeat that. Was it A, Frankfurt, Germany, B. Hamburg, Germany, C. Buns, Germany, or D. Cookout, Germany. Hamburg and the Cavern Club is where they learned their basics, and they were able to put the band really together. It started out with Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison, but they had to go through a number of drummers, Pete Best and Stu Sutcliffe, before they got to Ringo. After that, as they say, the rest is history so to speak. More on the Beatles coming up. That's an example of what you face if you stick around. I should point out, too, that all the facts have been researched as well as we can. The facts are facts. The quizzes are all made up, and the points don't matter. So how did this all start? How did I become your friendly neighborhood quiz master? I hear you ask. Well, first, we need to return to those thrilling days of yesteryear when people still listened to the radio. You know, there wasn't internet or anything like that. And disc jockeys, DJs, air personalities, professional smartasses ruled the airwaves. We were the Kardashians, the, the influencers, the TikTokers of the day. The days being from the mid-1950s to the mid-80s. Every town in the U.S. had at least two top 40 stations pumping out the hits, with jocks talking about your town, your favorite tunes, your favorite movies, sports, fashion, and hangouts. DJs then were fun, entertaining, and accessible, and I was one of those guys. Morning mouth, morning mouth, morning, morning mouth. <laughs> KAKC, well, hi there. How you doing? It is 6.03. This is your fabulous super psychedelic boss, heavy major market electric super freak out rock and roll. This jockey today with cheap thrills, hot flashes. Yeah, that was me. Times have changed. Uh, most of us had special features like crank letters, addresses to the nation, Beatles for breakfast, two for Tuesday, the tooth fairy, the joke of the day, the list goes on and on, which brings me to the little known and even less cared for fact which I started doing while I was still on campus radio at Indiana University back when dinosaurs still ruled the earth and continued throughout my 40-year professional career. The format was simple. Find an obscure, weird, silly, or odd bit of trivia followed by a punchline, then on to the next song or commercial. The bit worked on a number of levels. The trivia was interesting and the punchline funny, or at least the trivia was cool, or the trivia sucked but the joke made you laugh, or if none of the above worked, you'd soon be doing overnights in Peoria. The little known and even less cared for fact rock podcast is about the history of rock and roll. We'll examine its roots, stars, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the good, the bad, and the ugly, from the animals to ZZ Top. 
The format is simple. We'll begin our rock version of a National Geographic trip in the Big Apple, New York City, with little known and even less cared for facts and quizzes about the rock of that town than to Philly, New Jersey, up to Toronto, eh? Cleveland, Detroit, until we wind up around the globe in England and Ireland before this thing concludes. So, let's get started with our first little-known and even less cared-for fact quiz. Where does the term rock and roll come from? A. The asteroid that took out the dinosaurs. B. Cleveland DJ Alan Freed. C. The movie Rock Around the Clock. D. An episode of the Flintstones. Here's the question again. Where does the term rock and roll come from? A. The asteroid that took out the dinosaurs. B. Cleveland DJ Alan Freed. C. The movie Rock Around the Clock. D. An episode of the Flintstones. Here's the little known and even less cared for fact. In 1951, Cleveland-based DJ Alan Freed began playing a new music style, popularizing the term rock and roll on mainstream radio. Freed is credited with being the first rock and roll disc jockey and rock concert producer. Got in trouble later in the first payola scandal, which many believe was a setup to stop the evils of heathen rock and roll. Freed made no bones about where he got the term. It was originally a verb to African-American Jews, meaning to have sexual intercourse. It was a euphemism that appeared in song titles since 1914's Trixie Smith, My Man Rocks Me With One Steady Roll. Time for the little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz and stomp. We begin in Manhattan. What place in New York City is known as the Writer's Building? A. The Empire State Building. B. The Flim Building. C. The Chrysler Building. D. The Brill Building. Again, what place in New York City is known as the Writer's Building? A. The Empire State Building. B. The Flim Building. C, the Chrysler Building, and D, the Brill Building. Here's the fact. From the late 50s and throughout the 1960s, the Brill Building was the most prestigious address in New York for the music business pros. By 1962, the Brill Building contained 165 music businesses. It was a one-stop shop. A musician could find a publisher and a printer, cut a demo, promote the record, and cut a deal with record promoters, all within this one building. The culture of creativity the independent music companies in the Brill Building employed came to define the style of popular songwriting and recording created by its writers and producers. Carol King describes the atmosphere. Quote, Every day we squeezed into our respective cubbyholes with just enough room for a piano, a bench, and maybe a chair with the lyricist if you were lucky. You'd sit there and write, and you could hear someone in the next cubbyhole composing a song exactly like yours. The pressure in the Brill building was really terrific because Donnie Kirchner would play one songwriter against another. He'd say, we need a new smash hit, and we'd all go back and write a song, and the next day we'd each audition for Bobby V's producer. 
Speaking of Carole King, she wrote a huge hit for Little Eva, The Locomotion, in 1963. Who was Little Eva? A. Carole King's babysitter. B. Her sister. C. Her daughter. And D. Her parole officer. Let me give that to you again. Who was Little Eva? A. Carole King's babysitter. B. Her sister. C. Her daughter. And D. Her parole officer. Fact, Little Eva was Jerry Goffin and Carole King's babysitter. A number of years later, Grand Funk Railroad would also strike gold with a remake of Locomotion. Many of the best of Brill were written by a loose group of songwriter-producer teams who wrote some of the biggest hits of the period. Close friends and, or in the cases of Goffin King, Man Wheel, and Greenwich Berry, married couples, they often worked together and with other writers on a wide variety of combinations. Here are just a few of the Brill-building alumni. Burt Bacharach and Hal Davis, Sonny Bono, Boyce and Hart, Neil Diamond, Tony Orlando, Andy Kim, David Gates, Jerry Goffin and Carol King, Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Berry, Marvin Hamlish, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, Neil Sedaka and Howard Greenfield, Paul Simon as Jerry Landis, Phil Spector, Bobby Darren, The Drifters featuring Benny King, Connie Francis, Leslie Gore, Darlene Love, Liza Minnelli, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, Gene Pitney, The Ronettes, The Shangri-Las, The Shirelles, The Sweet Inspirations, Doris Troy, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, Dee Dee Warwick, and Dion Warwick. Whew! Now that's a list of all-stars. And now for something completely different. Remember the last time we left John and Marcia, they were in Farmer in the Delaware, where Marcia was dying in the kitchen. Let's listen. Marcia! Marcia, where are you? I'm in the kitchen dying! What? Easter eggs! <laughs> Marcia! Oh, John! Be with us again next time when John gets stranded deserted traffic island. So while we're in New York City, let's head on over to Bard College, where Donald Fagan and Walter Becker are forming a band, Steely Dan. Time now for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. Where did Steely Dan get its name? A. A CBS News anchor B. William Burroughs' book, A Naked Lunch C. A Western gunslinger D. One of Henry Ford's first vehicles <laughs> Let me give that to you again. Where did Steely Dan get its name? A. A CBS News anchor B. William Burroughs' book, A Naked Lunch C. A Western gunslinger D, one of Henry Ford's first vehicles. Here's the little-known and even less cared-for fact. Fans of Beat Generation literature, Fagan and Beckard, named their band after a revolutionary steam-powered dildo mentioned in the William Burroughs novel Naked Lunch. 
now the most famous dildo in the world. Becker and Fagan played together on a variety of bands from their time together, studying at Bard College on Annandale on Hudson, New York. They later moved on to Los Angeles, gathering a band of musicians and began recording albums. Their first album, Can't Buy a Thrill, in 72, established a format for their career, blending elements of rock, jazz, Latin music, R&B, and blues, and sophisticated studio production with cryptic and ironic lyrics. The band enjoyed critical and commercial success throughout seven studio albums, peaking with their top-selling Asia album in 1977. I had a chance to see them while uh, Walter Becker was still alive just a few years ago in, in Portland at the Schnitz, and they were absolutely fabulous. And I'd seen them years and years before, and they were fabulous then, too. This is your announcer saying, this is your announcer saying, the staff of this fine podcast have researched and vetted the little-known and even less-cared-for facts using reference material provided by the Rolling Stone, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Motown Museum, numerous artist and label websites, Wikipedia, and personal remembrances by friends and relations. But since it has been known that the World Wide Web is perhaps sometimes incorrect in its facts, if you find a fact you feel is incorrect, Please email us at mikesrockquiz at gmail.com. Remember, the facts are facts, the quizzes are made up, and the points don't matter. And once again, it's time for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. Though Frank Sinatra made it memorable, who wrote New York, New York? Was it A... Sammy Kahn, B, Lennon and McCartney, C, Kander and Ebb, D, Stoller and Lieber. Let me repeat that. Though Frank Sinatra made it memorable, who wrote New York, New York? A, Sammy Kahn, B, Lennon and McCartney, C, Kander and Ebb, D, Stoller and Lieber. New York, New York was the theme song from the Martin Scorsese film New York, New York in 1977. It was composed by John Kander with lyrics by Fred Ebb. The song did not become popular until it was picked up in concert by Frank Sinatra during his performance at Radio City Music Hall in 1978. Television played a huge role in introducing us to rock and roll, especially Ed Sullivan, who showed us a gyrating Elvis, the Beatles, the Stones, who Sullivan banned after they ignored the censors, the Who, the Kinks, plus the Doors, who were banned for life, and as I understand it, put on double secret probation. And Saturday Night Live with Paul Simon, Sinead O'Connor, Dave Grohl, Paul McCartney, Snoop Dogg, Mick Jagger, on and on and on. So with that in mind, let's go on to another little-known and even less-cared-for fact rock quiz question. But Sullivan's show featured a ton of rock acts, and they also featured... An odd little rodent. Was it A. Ratatouille, B. Mickey Mouse, C. Topo Gigio, D. Ted Cruz?
me repeat that. An odd little rodent. Was it A, Ratatouille, B, Mickey Mouse, C, Topo Gigio, D, Ted Cruz? There's no proof that Ted Cruz was ever on the Sullivan Show, so that lets that rodent out. Topo Gigio was the lead character of a children's puppet show on Italian television, and he was booked on the show as an effort to make Sullivan more appealing to his viewers, especially kids, because they were up against the wonderful world of Disney. On now to another little-known and even less-cared-for fact rock quiz question. Saturday Night Live will be 50 in 2024. Which one of the following was not an original cast member? A. Gilda Radner. B. Dan Aykroyd. C. Bill Murray. D. Garrett Morris. Let me repeat that. Saturday Night Live will be 50 in 2024. Which one of the following was not an original cast member? A. Gilda Radner. B. Dan Aykroyd. C. Bill Murray. D. Garrett Morris. Bill Murray joined the cast after Chevy Chase quit after the first year. Saturday Night Live has won numerous awards since debuting, including 87 Primetime Emmy Awards, six Writers Guild of America Awards, and three Peabody Awards. Plus, spin-off rock movies like The Blues Brothers, one of my all-time favorites, and Wayne's World. As long as we're in New York City, we need to talk a little bit about punk rock. Which, it's kind of a misnomer anyway, because rock's always been punk. I mean, Elvis's curled upper lip, Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and their leather, Little Richard, The Beatles in Hamburg, The Rolling Stones like Forever, The Animals, Early Springsteen, the list goes on and on. In the 60s, I was aware of the MC5 and Iggy and the Stooges living in the Detroit area, so I was not at all surprised when the New York Dolls and television and Patti Smith and the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned in London, when they started really becoming big. And one of the reasons for it was they were kind of a stripped down, return to the roots rock and roll. So with that in mind, let's go on to another little-known and even less-cared-for fact rock quiz question. Simon John Ritchie and John Joseph Lydon were members of what major punk band? Uh, by the way, they did use stage names. A. The Clash. B. The Cars. C. The Sex Pistols. D. The Champagne Music Makers. Again, Simon John Ritchie and John Joseph Lydon were members of what major punk band? A. The Clash B. The Cars C. The Sex Pistols D. The Champagne Music Makers Thank you, thank you, boys, but it was not the Champagne Music Makers. Simon John Ritchie, whose stage name was Sid Vicious, and John Joseph Lydon, whose stage name was Johnny Rotten, were huge members of the huge punk rock band the Sex Pistols. They were hit between 75 and 78, and a major fashion designer, Vivianne Westwood, credits Johnny Rotten with being the first punk musician to rip his shirt, and Sid Vicious as being the first to use safety pins. 
I'm to Long Island, and that uptown guy, Billy Joel, one of my all-time faves. Had a chance to see him a couple of times. What a remarkable performer. Time now for a little-known and even less-cared-for fact rock quiz question. And Billy Joel's piano man, who is a friend of his and who gives him his drinks for free? A. Father Guido Sarducci B. Captain Jack C. Joe the Bartender D. John Jameson And Billy Joel's Piano Man, who is a friend of his and who gives him his drinks for free? A. Father Guido Sarducci B. Captain Jack C. Joe the Bartender D. John Jameson Here's the fact. It is Joe the Bartender, ironic since Joel has had a number of years in recovery. Born in the Bronx, Joel grew up on Long Island, where his mom made him take piano lessons after dropping out of high school. He caught the attention of Columbia Records after a live radio performance of Captain Jack. His second album, Piano Man, in 1973, established him as a radio favorite, and The Stranger in 1977 sold over 10 million copies and several hit singles, including Just the Way You Are, Moving Out, Anthony's Song, Only the Good Die Young, and Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. 52nd Street in 1978 became his first number one album, while his seventh studio album, Glass Houses, in 1980, featured Still Rock and Roll to Me, his first single to top the Billboard Hot 100 charts. We Didn't Start the Fire reached the top of the Billboard charts as well, Joel has been nominated for 23 Grammy Awards, winning six of them, including Album of the Year for 52nd Street. Joel was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1992, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1999, and in 2013 he received the Kennedy Center Honors for Influencing American Culture Through the Arts. And speaking of singer-songwriters, Harry Chapin. Time now for a little-known and even less-cared-for fact rock quiz question. What city got hammered by 100,000 pounds of bananas? A. Hilo, Hawaii. B. Sarasota, Florida. C. Scranton, Pennsylvania. D. Sacramento, California. What city got hammered by 100,000 pounds of bananas? A. Hilo, Hawaii. B. Sarasota, Florida. C. Scranton, Pennsylvania. D. Sacramento, California. The answer is Scranton, Pennsylvania. 100,000 pounds of mashed bananas. Harry was a philanthropist, a hunger activist, and America's rock troubadour in the grand tradition of the Irish bards. Chapin, a Grammy Award-winning artist and Hall of Fame inductee, has sold over 16 million records worldwide. Chapin recorded a total of 11 albums from 72 until his death in 1981. All 14 singles he released became hits, and his best-known songs include Taxi and Cats in a Cradle, and, of course, the one that all the disc jockeys remember more than anything, W-O-L-D, about a disc jockey down on his luck. 
As a dedicated humanitarian, he was a key participant in the creation of the Presidential Commission on World Hunger in 1977. In 1987, Chapin was posthumously awarded the Congressional Gold Medal for his humanitarian work. He is someone who is truly missed. And now this. You'll remember the last time we left John and Marcia, they were in five and Tennessee, where John had just run into an old friend. Let's listen. Why, Marcia, it's my old friend, Fred. Fred? Fred. Fred? Fred. Anybody seen my teeth? Be with us again next time when Marcia swallows her pride and chokes to death. And now we head across the Hudson River to New Jersey. Once again, it's time for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. What is New Jersey's main export? A. Satrielli Meats B. Dr. Oz C. Palladium and D. The Kardashians What is New Jersey's main export? A. Satrielli Meats B. Dr. Oz C. Palladium and D. The Kardashians Here's the fact Believe it or not, it's palladium, which is some kind of ore. (laughs) And here I thought it was the Kardashians. Quote, this was different. It shifted the lay of the land. Four guys playing and singing, writing their own material. Rock and roll came to my house where there seemed to be no way out. And it opened up a whole world of possibilities. That's Bruce Springsteen on the impact of the Beatles. Quite a career for the boss. These days he pals around with Obama... Mr. Cool himself, and plays a major influence on fundraising for progressive causes. But in 1964, Springsteen saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, and he was inspired. He bought his first guitar for $18.95 at the Western Auto Store, started a band called The Rogues, then Steel Mill, where he, where he finally got hooked up with Danny Federici and Stephen Van Zandt. They performed regularly on the New Jersey shore, quickly gathering a cult following. Springsteen signed with Columbia Records in 1972, formed the E Street Band, recorded Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey, which didn't go very well. By the way, Springsteen got his name The Boss because either he got stuck collecting the band's nightly take or his expertise in Monopoly fleecing Jersey Shore musicians. After seeing Springsteen's performance in Harvard Square, music critic John Landau wrote, I see the rock and roll future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. And on a night where I needed to feel young, he made me feel like I was hearing music for the very first time. Landau helped to finish the epic new album Born to Run and subsequently became Springsteen's manager and producer. The album took more than 14 months to record, during the time Springsteen battled anger and frustration over the album. Then Steve Van Zandt was asked by Springsteen to take charge. He did. When they finished, Springsteen turned to Mike Apple, his road manager, and said, Okay, put the boy on the payroll. Van Zandt joined the E Street Band a week later on the opening night of the Born to Run tour. And speaking of Stephen Van Zandt, 
And here we are with another little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. In addition to being a great musician, he's a talented actor. Which one of the following did he not star in? A. The Sopranos B. Lilyhammer C. The Irishman D. Goodfellas Which one of the following did he not star in? A. The Sopranos B. Lilyhammer C. The Irishman D. Goodfellas The fact is, he never appeared in Goodfellas, or he'd be perfect in it, but Lilyhammer, oh my God, that's such a good... Well, all three of those that we mentioned... Actually, all four Goodfellas was great, too. Anyway, uh, Born to Run proved to be the breakthrough album that capitulated Springsteen to worldwide fame. Peaked at number three with Born to Run at 23, along with 10th Avenue Freeze Out and Thunder Road and Jungle Land, all of which are still on the radio. In 1975, Springsteen appeared on the covers of both Newsweek and Time in the same week. His best-known album is Born in the USA, which sold 15 million copies. The title track was a bitter commentary on the treatment of Vietnam veterans, some of which were Springsteen's friends. The irony, of course, was that right-wing politicians included it in their stuff, Born in the USA, thinking that it was a a pro-war thing. And just missed it completely. Dancing in the Dark was the biggest of his seven hit singles from the Born in the USA tour, peaking at number two. The video for the song showed a young Courtney Cox dancing on stage with Springsteen, which helped to start her career. Springsteen also played on the We Are the World song and album in 1985. And he gets to pal around with Obama. Talk about cool. This is your announcer saying a programming reminder. As much as we would love to play the tunes referenced here, due to royalty concerns, i.e. we can't afford the fees, I suggest you check them out on YouTube or Google. But if enough of you indicate that you would be willing to subscribe or contribute to this fine podcast, that could change. Once again, it's time for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. Okay, as long as we're in Jersey, what band was the musical Jersey Boys modeled after? A. The Four Seasons B. The Four Preps C. The Four Tops D. The Four Putts What band was the musical Jersey Boys modeled after? A. The Four Seasons B. The Four Preps C. The Four Tops D. The Four Putts The fact is, the Four Seasons. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. They're one of the best-selling musical groups of all time. Having sold an estimated 100 million records, Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, Candy Girl... From 1962 to early 1964, the Beach Boys were the only band to match the Four Seasons in record sales in the U.S. More top 20 singles followed in 65, 66, and 67, including Let's Hang On, Don't Think Twice It's Alright, Working My Way Back to You, Opus 17, 
I've got you under my skin and can't take my eyes off you. Now on to Philadelphia. Who can forget the immortal words of W.C. Fields inscribed on his tombstone? On the whole, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Time now for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. Where did the phrase, it's got a nice beat and it's easy to dance to originate? A. The Fred Astaire Dance Studios. B. American Bandstand. C. An Ancient Inca Ritual. D. The Voice. Where did the phrase, it's got a nice beat and it's easy to dance to originate? A. The Fred Astaire Dance Studios. B. American Bandstand. C. An Ancient Inca Ritual. D. The Voice. American Bandstand was hosted from 1956 until its final season by Dick Clark, who served as the program's producer as well. It featured teenagers dancing to Top 40 music introduced by Clark, and at least one popular musical act anywhere from Jerry Lee Lewis to Run DMC. And they usually appeared in person to lip-sync one of their latest singles. Freddie Boom Boom Cannon holds the record for the most appearances at 110, the program was broadcast live weekday afternoons, and by 1959, the show had a national audience of 20 million. That is a huge amount of teenagers, and all of them needing zit cream. American Bandstand was a daily ritual for teens throughout the nation. The top 40 hits that everyone heard were matched with fun dance routines performed by relatable and reliable teenagers. It heavily influenced American society culturally, musically, and socially. It was also the prototype for MTV and American Idol. American Bandstand made teen idols out of some of the local Philly kids, including Frankie Avalon, Bobby Rydell, and Fabian Forti. Beginning in 1963, all five shows for the upcoming week were videotaped the preceding Saturday. ABC moved production of Bandstand to Los Angeles. The look and the attitude went from greaser a surfer overnight. Write the record where Dick asked teenagers their opinions of up-and-coming hits. Two audience members each ranked two records on a scale of 35 to 98. Then Clark asked them to justify their scores. Hence, it's got a nice beat and it's easy to dance to. American Bandstand played a critical role in introducing Americans to Prince, the Jackson 5, Sonny and Cher, Aerosmith, and Johnny Rotten, all of whom made their American TV debuts on that show. And speaking of Philly TV talkers, before this guy got his own show, he was the band leader for the K. Kaiser Big Band. Who was he? A. Merv Griffin B. Dick Cavett C. Mike Douglas D. Whoopi Goldberg That. Before this guy got his own show, he was the lead singer of the K. Kaiser Big Band. Who was he? A. Merv Griffin. B. Dick Cavett. C. Mike Douglas. D. Whoopi Goldberg. The Mike Douglas Show by 1967 was broadcast to 171 markets and 6 million viewers each day, mostly women at home. It won its first Emmy in 1967, and at the peak of his career, Douglas was earning $2 million a year. It was a pretty laid-back show with an eclectic mix of hosts. 
Douglas was not a flamboyant guy himself, and so he kind of let the uh, guests be, be flamboyant if they would. People like John and Yoko, Sly Stone, Muhammad Ali, Little Richard, and tons of other rockers, adding a bit of spice to the mostly dull daytime fare of the day. Once again, it's time for a little-known and even less cared-for fact rock quiz question. The Philadelphia story would be incomplete without mentioning Phil Spector, one of the great producers of the era. His signature style was called A, the Hall of Sound, B, the Wall of Sound, C, the Wall of Hits, D, Wallbangers. His signature style was called A, the Hall of Sound, B, the Wall of Sound, C, the Wall of Hits, D, Wallbangers. No surprise here, Spectre's Wall of Sound took up all the available bandwidth analog recordings would allow, producing a fuller, richer recording. Good examples include the Ronettes, the Righteous Brothers, and the quintessential Spectre Wall of Sound song, Tina Turner's River Deep and Mountain High. I'd love to play that right now, but the royalty costs would kill me. Yes, Spectre turned out to be a creep, but his sound was emulated by countless rock groups, including, yes, the Doobie Brothers and the Who. This is your announcer saying, this is your announcer saying that this has been the first little-known and even less cared for fact rock quiz and stomp podcast. Don't fail to miss our next exciting adventure as we venture north of the border to the great white north, then on to the Midwest, and according to the Beach Boys, the Midwest farmer's daughters who make you feel all right. And this is your announcer saying, bye-bye.